faith, act like men, be strong, and then let all that you do be done in love. Which I do think it's interesting. We, we talk about be strong, but immediately Paul says everything you do should be done in love. So strength is not just being strong. It's about doing things motivated by the spirit of love. With that in mind, if you will, turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 1 is where I'm kind of setting up my outline for the day, where he is talking about the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And then he says, I who am humble when face to face with you, bold toward you when I'm away. The Corinthian letters are both very interesting. 1 Corinthians shows you a church that just had a ton of problems in all kinds of different areas. I don't know that any of us would really sign up to be with the Corinthian church. I don't know if we'd wake up going, hey, that's the church I want to be with because they're so divided on everything. But 2 Corinthians is a different tone. Paul, and this is what some commentaries will do, scholars will say that Paul wrote first in 2 Corinthians up to chapter 10 because the tone of chapters 10 through 13 changes drastically. He's much more sarcastic. I know we sometimes use 13 verse 5, examine yourselves, right? We're like, well, we, how many of us have done lessons on examining ourselves, right? But in the context, Paul is like, you guys have been stressing me out, examining me. Why don't you examine yourselves? Look to you. You're looking at me. Look at yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Well, you know, here they were giving Paul, I say, a hard time. It's kind of like a parent with a teenage uh, child, you know, that... This struggle that, what is this? The Corinthians were the teenager. Paul was like a loving parent. He even describes himself that way. I am your father in the faith. But what we have going on here is Paul starting his defense. It crescendos in 13.5, examine yourselves, but this is where he starts. In 10.1, we're going to read the chapter. I, Paul, myself, entreat you. I beg you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, I'm going to stop here for the moment. Just to say this, and we're not going to do this for every verse, but in the outline at some point you're going to see the three words for meekness and gentleness and humility. I know for most of us we've probably heard things like meekness is not weakness. Well, they rhyme, so we go with that. But if I was to define meekness, it's strength under control. That's really the idea. It is a tamed horse. It is the ability to do the hard thing, but you don't always do that. It's like a a weightlifter who deadlifts a thousand pounds and his veins are popping out of his head and his arms. I don't have any experience with that. I deadlift 20 pounds maybe, you know. But a thousand pounds and he just, but he's not the guy. Meekness is not the guy who walks up and he comes to this lectern and just throws it around because he can, right? Meekness is, he doesn't do that because even though he has the strength to do things like that, that's discernment to say, I'm not going to do that. Well, meekness is that discernment. Uh, and I have a number of passages that are listed there. You can look through to see where the word's used. Gentleness is another word that's only used twice, this particular form of the word. Uh, used here and then 24.4 of Acts, where it's actually translated kindness in the English Standard. Uh, it is a word that is used uh, five other times in a different form there, uh, epi, I case. And then humble, which we know humble, but Paul uses all three of these words in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1, which I thought was pretty, pretty cool. And as you go through the rest of this, back in our text of 2 Corinthians 10, he says, I who am humble when face to face, but bold toward you. Well, they accuse him of writing really straightforward 
tough letters, but then face-to-face, he's not what they expected at all. And they take that in the wrong way and apply it to him in the wrong way. So he says in verse 2, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk by the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare, and you notice the terms he's using here, these are weapons of our warfare, are not of the flesh. They have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone's confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. Even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not destroying you, I will not be ashamed. And notice Paul's use of the plural. He says, our authority. He's talking about probably himself and maybe some others who were with him that obviously the Corinthians would have known about. He says in verse 9, I don't want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. I think he's being sarcastic. They're kind of like, oh, he's so scary when he writes us. But when he comes to us, he's some weakling. Verse 10, they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by each other and compare themselves with each other, they're without understanding. Uh, That's what we do though, right? I mean, even to this day, we act like I'm not as bad as or I'm better than. (laughs) That's the comparative thing that Paul says we shouldn't be doing. But we're not going to boast beyond limits, verse 13. I, he says, will boast only in regard to the area of influence that God has actually assigned to reach you. We are not overextending ourselves as though we didn't reach you. We were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel. We don't boast beyond the limit of the labors of others, but our hope is that your faith increases And our area of influence among you would also be greatly enlarged. Verse 16, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. You're not the only people on the face of the planet is kind of what he seems to say. Without boasting of work already done in someone else's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Which ties back really to verse 1 of the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. It is not the one who commends himself who is approved. It is the one whom the Lord commends. And again, this is all part of his defense about you guys are looking at me and you guys are thinking of me with ill intention, which he's already written to them in 1 Corinthians 13, that love doesn't do that. But they were doing that to him. And so, again, when he uses these words, meekness and gentleness and humility, he's trying to get us to act like men. Now, the words act like men, as you have there in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, Brother Schmidt had already mentioned this, that the Greek word andritsamai, it's a verb form to act like males, you know, men. It's not just act like people, it's act like men. It's a frequent command. If you see there, I have uh, the ESV study Bible has, it's a frequent command in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament. It is used in contexts encouraging people, especially soldiers, to act with courage Strength and obedience to the Lord and with confidence in his power. And that's what we're going to be talking about is being strong. 
I know, you know, most of us, we watch TV, so at some point you're seeing commercials, and I know we live in a world that you can't even watch TV commercials without men being made fun of. Almost always, the men who are in TV commercials are doofuses, right? They're dumb, they don't know how to do anything, they're in the corner with the fork in the electric socket, and the wife's like, oh, you're so stupid, and I'm using that kind of as a really extreme example, but one that came up just the other day was Verizon. They've got these new series of commercials with an actress from Saturday Night Live. She's the main voice, I guess, of the Verizon commercial. But the one that just came out somewhat recently is a uh, character of uh, Einstein, you know? Well, Einstein, you're like, he's a genius. I mean, he's the relative theorist, and he's like, you know, he's Einstein. Well, he's a doofus. He's a goofball. He comes up and he's all upset because of his phone plan and she's the genius. And at the very end, it's like he's going to rush to go get Verizon and he leaves his bicycle. And she's like, well, the bicycle might be faster. Again, you know, these are subtle things, but men are to be entertainment, I guess. You know, we're, we're just not really all that smart. The women are almost always the smartest. I really do get irritated. I, by the way, just to let you know my pedigree, I have four daughters <laughs> And a wife. So I have lived for a long time with five women in the house. And it's a different dynamic. Uh, there have been a few years that I have, uh, you know, been with the men, you know, and men and women are, are vastly different. And I get that. But when I'm at home with five women, it's, it's overwhelming, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's overwhelming sometimes because they look at things very differently than me. Uh, I've learned the very hard way when my wife is telling me there's a problem that I'm not the solution finder. She just wants to talk to somebody. I want to find the solution. And then, she, I, then she wants you to fix it. Well, yeah, eventually. And, and, but, and I've told her before that it's hard as a man. I'm built to fix, you know. I'm finding solutions as you're talking. And she's made it clear she just wants someone to listen. And then, like Brother Schmidt says, yes, she then wants me to fix. Chop, chop, right? One of those sort of things. But... You know, the ideas of being meek and being gentle doesn't seem to fit with strength, but that's exactly what Paul was trying to convey to the Corinthians. I am to you, I am coming to you in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I don't know about you, I don't think of Jesus in an effeminate way ever. One of the reasons I don't like the portrayals of Jesus as a long-haired white guy is like he's effeminate. That's not the Jesus that I know anything about. And not when you read the Bible. That's not the Jesus. I mean... He performs miracles. Like in Mark 3, one of my favorite stories is a man with a withered hand on Sabbath. And he asked, Jesus says to all of them, is it better to do good or evil on the Sabbath? I don't know about you. How hard a question is that? Nobody answers because they're afraid he's trying to trip them up. And he's just wanting them to show compassion. And the text actually says that he looked around at them angry. I don't know about you. I don't know if I'd want Jesus angry with me. <laughs> You know, the, you know, the wilting uh, uh, glare of somebody like that. But Jesus is the one who, the night he's betrayed, tells Peter, put your sword away. Do you not know I can request of God the Father, you know, a legion of angels, or 12 legions of angels, excuse me. And a legion was about 6,000 men. So if you do the math, which in some other context I've done the math, I'm not good at math, 72,000 angels he says he could request. One angel, according to you know, the book of Kings, killed 186,000 valiant warriors. 
Can you imagine having that kind of firepower? 72,000 angels where one can kill 186,000 men. The situation the night he was betrayed was under control. That's meekness. He had the power, but he wasn't using it. And that's what I think Paul wants us to understand is being strong. There's a time, and there is a time for us to do things the way men are supposed to do things. If you will, do the hard things. I know the problem is we don't want to do hard things because we, we know someone's going to criticize us. Someone's going to say in an armchair quarterback way, you should have done it this way. You should have said it that way. You shouldn't have done it this way. But we sometimes need to just do the right thing because it is the right thing, whatever the personal cost. You might lose your job. Yeah. It's not like there are no other jobs. <laughs> uh, when I was working at Cash and Carry as a uh, teenage uh, bagger boy, I remember, uh, and this was one early test, I had gone to interview. My dad had trained me how to interview, and he basically was saying, look, you uh, tell them you're not going to be there for Sundays and Wednesday nights because of Bible study worship and all. And that's what I told my manager. He had no problem with it. And the assistant manager who did the schedules, guess what my first schedule said when it came out? I was working Sunday. So I called first thing Sunday morning and basically said, I'm not going to be there. I said up front, I wasn't working on a Sunday. And so he said, well, you're going to lose your job. And I'm like, like there's no other bag boy job in the whole area. I was in Tampa. He goes, you being smart with me? I said, sir, I'm just telling you, I'm not coming in. Well, the long story really short is he lost his job, not because of that only, but because of a few other things like that. And it, it was hard. But I've been in other places where brethren are like, we're doing this. And I'm like, I know I'm like Jerome talked about. You're going to be the only one doing the right thing. I don't have backup. I've had it, I've had it happen as a preacher where someone is like, yeah, if you stand up, I'll stand with you. And when I stand up, guess who's all standing with me? Nobody. And it hurts. I mean, I can tell you it's an emotional thing for me to be left out high and dry because it's like, you said you'd, oh, hell, I, uh, yeah, okay, just move on. But there are times, as men, we need to be strong and not apologize for being strong. Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love, right? And we're all like, yeah, but love sometimes has to yell. If, if you have a child walking backward toward a cliff edge, and you don't know how far it is, 100 feet, that can kill somebody, 500 feet, what would you do? Hey, honey, um, I don't want to scare you or anything, but if you keep, you don't do that. If it's your own daughter, what do you do? You yell. <laughs> hey, you know, and you startle them. I remember one time with the four daughters, I've got two that I remember with Kelsey, my oldest, she was really funny. One time, three or four years old, had disappeared on us at a visiting congregation we were at. She was just ready to go. She was at the car. I was mad because she just disappeared on us. We had no idea where she was. We found her very relieved, and she got a spanking. I mean, nothing brutal, nothing major, but she, you hurt my feelings. I don't care. As your father, I don't care. I just, I, you need to understand you can't do that. And I've got another daughter, Ashley, who can cry on command. She practices it, by the way. She's 20 now. But she has. I mean, over the year, I remember walking in on her one time. What are you doing? She's like practicing crying. <laughs> she might have been like 10 years old. And I'm like, what in the world? But, you know, she's the one that at times would just cry because, oh, she wasn't getting her way. And I'm like, you've got to understand, I don't care how you feel. 
this is not what we're doing. And the dynamic has changed through the years, but, but still, there are times, and I'm just using that as kind of silly illustrations, but sometimes we need to do the hard things, and they need sometimes to be said in a way that is going to startle people. Uh, you don't always speak softly to say strong things. Uh, I know when we think about being strong, we think about exercise, and uh, that's something for sure. It's like the Hebrews 5 tells us, about uh, verses 12 through 14, that though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone again to teach you the basic principles. Well, if we don't use it, we're going to lose it, right? So that's kind of the thing. Exercise. We need to spiritually get into the Word so, yeah, it gets into us. I, uh, I have a number of discussions with folks, either Facebook, Twitter, things like that. Uh, Twitter is a cesspool. It's a hard thing to get into and leave feeling that you've done any good at all. It happens sometimes, but it is a rare thing. But one, one guy, I don't know how long ago it was. It was a while ago. Uh, we were talking, and he said, everything you respond with is from the Word of God. And I'm like, it wasn't because I had a Bible next to me. It was just everything he was saying. I was just thinking of a few passages that I think would address what we're talking about. And I told him, it's just it's training. It's how you think, and that's how I think. Uh, if you're in any sort of a specialized field, you think that way. Engineers think that way. We, in Virginia, when I was preaching there, we had one older guy. All he would do was tell me what I was doing wrong. I didn't like it after a while. <laughs> and I said, you know, what really frustrates me is you only point out problems. He goes, well, I don't mean to only point out problems, but come to find out. He worked for DuPont up in Martinsville, Virginia, and guess what his job was? Yeah, quality control. And what do you do for quality control? You find problems. You don't offer solutions. All he had to do was find the crack in whatever, or the bolt wasn't tight enough. Whatever he was doing, he's like, literally he was trained for 20-something years to do that, and so that's what he did. And he didn't know any differently, which I learned from that. It's easy enough to point out a problem, but sometimes before pointing out a problem, maybe have a solution or two in mind of what you're going to say is, here's the problem, let's put this solution into force. It's not an easy lesson, by the way. <laughs> it's easy to point out problems. It no doubt is. But, and that's what Paul's doing, I think, even in 2 Corinthians 10, is I'm approaching you with meekness and gentleness of Christ, and I am humble with you in face-to-face. He's trying to defend himself by saying, I'm not coming in with every gun blazing. I don't need to do that. You should respect me as an apostle. And I'm coming to you because I love you. I mean, that's essentially how I would put chapter 10. The thing is, we need strength and we need it from God. But specifically, as Paul would say in Ephesians 6, we need the armor of God. I think most of us probably know the song, Soldiers of Christ Arise. There's a phrase in there about the panoply of God. Does anybody know what a panoply is? Because it's not a word we use too often. A full armor. Yeah, the, the whole display. It's not just... The fact that you've got six pieces here, seven, you, the display is all of it together, the panoply. Pan means all, basically. So the panoply. And that's what Paul wants us to do in Ephesians six ten through 20, is put on the panoply of God. If we're going to fight, we need to be, you know, I've worked with people who work in logistics and things. You don't send the men out to fight and say, oh yeah, we don't have any guns, we don't have any knives, we don't have any grenades, and we don't have, you know, you list all the things you don't have. Well, then why, why am I being sent out to fight? 
And this isn't, as Paul says, a, a physical fight. We're fighting a spiritual warfare. But God's given us in his word, as we see, all the things to do to fight with people. Um, I'm going to say this because I, I know it's already been kind of broached. Um, what, what is your name again? Zach. Zach, sorry. Horrible with names. I can pick you out of a lineup. I am not good with names. So I may ask him again. What's your name? <laughs> Uh, well, what I was going to say is kind of opened it up with a homosexual thing, and I've been dealing a little bit with that on Twitter, and people come up with some really crazy arguments. Uh, the whole transgender thing, I did not know, but this is the popular argument that in Matthew 19, when Jesus said some people are born eunuchs and some people choose, that's a popular passage for people today to say that's transgenderism in the first century. I've never come across that until recently, and I'm like, what? So, you know, you're trying to help people understand the idea of a eunuch is always a man, always male. That's the point. Male, not man. Not you think you're a man. You are a man. You don't do those functions anymore to protect the female, the queen, the princess, the whoever. But uh, the other thing is, and I just kind of came across this recently on the homosexual thing, the passage in Ezekiel 16.49 is basically God saying that the reason he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah is because they were very wealthy and they did not take care of the poor and homeless. That's what's being regurgitated over and over again. And the first time you come across that and you turn in your Bible to Ezekiel 16.49, you're like, well, it's right. That's what it says. I've learned, again, the hard way. Stay in the context. The next verse (laughs) says... Also, because of the abominations, and you look that word up, I don't know Hebrew, but I know it's chicken scratch, you know, but I looked up the word for abomination, and it's used in Leviticus 18.22 in reference directly and specifically with homosexuality. Homosexuality is an abomination. It's the same word Ezekiel uses in Ezekiel 16.50. So I'm trying to get people to learn, hey, just stay right where you are in the context, but we're fighting this where, again, it's, it's this thing where this is what I imagine. And with my two younger daughters who are at home, it is a struggle, I think, more for them because they hear a lot of their friends who are talking and thinking about you are what you think you are. And I've told the girls, if that's really true, then I'm a nine-foot tall, you know, you fill in the blanks of this war. You're doing. I'm not. And they laugh when I describe myself in any sort of way like that because that's not what I am. I know Jerome earlier talked about he feels like a giant around me. He said, I meant that as a compliment. I said, yeah, what I heard is you're taller than me. Thank you, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, great, yeah. But, but what I'm trying to say is just because you think it of yourself doesn't mean that's who you are. And they know that then. But, okay, that's the world we're living in. We're going to have to learn not to just play by their rules, but learn where we can play by the rules and be strong. As soon as there's pushback, what, what do most people do? As soon as there's any sort of push, we, we, we wilt. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. Jesus in Matthew 15, I don't know if you remember, he preaches against their traditions and how they've elevated their traditions over God's commands. And the disciples, we're not told who they are, but the disciples gather to Jesus and basically say, do you not know that what you said offended them? I don't know if they used the word offend in that way, with that weight of offense, but that was their point. You offended them. You know what Jesus says? Let them be offended. 
It's one of the most amazing plants. You just let them be offended. Every plant my father has not planted is going to be uprooted. He says, let them be offended. Do you think Jesus ever offended people? Well, the Bible says he did. Matthew 15 is just exactly one place to go. But you know there were times people like the rich young ruler. He didn't go away happy that Jesus told him he's going to heaven. He went away grieved because he'd been told he wasn't going to heaven because of all his money, you know. Now, he wasn't told he was going to hell, but Jesus said, you've got to sell it all, give it to the poor, and come follow me. He grieved. So we need strength, but it's not just any old kind of strength. It's not what you find in books where men have written things about, you know, how to be a manly man and smell bad and, you know, be loud. And, and, and I don't have a problem with that. I really don't. Um, but, again, it's, I was thinking of camps that I've done where I, again, raised four daughters, lived with a woman, my wife, and here we are uh, at a camp where I've got 15 young boys. It's amazing the differences between girls and boys. I embrace it. I love it, you know, uh, for that one week. (laughs) I get back to the sanity of my own house. What I'm familiar with is really what that is. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, look over in 2 Kings 6. I didn't print this one out because it's long. But 2 Kings 6, because we need to remind ourselves of this. This is a passage I want us to look through because... There are times you're going to feel very alone. Physically, you're going to go, there's no one standing with me. It's going to be that thing where the brother says, hey, you stand, I'll stand with you, and you stand, and you're alone. Okay? 2 Kings 6, uh, you all probably know the story. This is, if you think about chariots of fire, this is where the phrasing comes from. This isn't the only time that phrase is used, but this is a great time. 2 Kings 6, 8, uh, Elisha, by the way, is a weirdo. Uh, he is one of the strangest Bible characters. I like him a lot because he is so weird. Uh, you know in Star Wars, the whole thing with Obi-Wan Kenobi? That is Elisha. I'm not kidding. Remember when uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi says to the stormtroopers, these are not the droids you're looking for. That's Obi-Wan Kenobi. That's Elisha. And we're going to read about that here. Verse 8, when once the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants and he said, at such and such a place, I'm going to camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware, you don't pass that place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him, and he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or or twice. The mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing, and he called to his servants and he said, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? In other words, We've got a mole. Someone is giving away coordinates. One of the servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. I don't know about you. If I was the king, I'd be going, uh, no, that doesn't happen. But they knew about it, apparently, or they knew of it. Let me say that. They knew of it. And so he said, Go and see where he is. I want you to send people out and arrest him. And so he was told, he's in Dothan, verse 13, verse 14, he went there with horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and they surrounded Dothan. When the servants of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, there was an army. Can you imagine? You wake up, you get up in the morning and expect to see nothing. (laughs) And you see an army set up, horses, chariots, all around the city. And the servants said, alas, my master, what are we going to do? And he said, don't be afraid. Those are with us are more than with them. 
you got to imagine the servant looking at Elisha like, oh, okay, here we go. What? What? And so the man, or the Lord, opened the eyes of the young man after Elisha. Skip verse 17. Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike them with blindness. And so he did. And then in verse 19, Elisha said, This is not the way. This is the Obi-Wan Kenobi thing. This is not the way. This is not the city. Follow me, and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. And so he led them to Samaria. Took them to a totally different place. And as soon as they entered, Elisha said, Lord, open their eyes that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the middle of Samaria. They were just in Dothan. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them all? And he said, no, you will feed them and then send them home. That's the rest of that section there through the, verse 23. It's, the point I want to make is not just this is a really weird story, but the fact is that we do not realize, we don't know, we don't have the eye of faith as Elisha prays, show them the army, show them the chariots of fire. But can you imagine, as sometimes we might be at work having to stand for what's actually right, morally right, not just the office decides something. I mean, something that is morally right, you are standing alone. Imagine yourself surrounded by the army. The army of God, the chariots of fire. Uh, I'm not saying it's imaginative and only imaginative. I think truly God does... Well, Matthew 18, he talks about how young children have their guardian angels, you know. Does he not do the same sort of thing even today? Uh, one of the passages I did print out for you is Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, which is right after that 2 Kings 6 uh, passage. But Paul here, and I notice verse 16 with you, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be <clears throat> excuse me, strengthened with power, through His Spirit in your inner being. Sorry. <clears throat> the word power is where we get our word dynamite from. So there's that idea. We are strengthened with dynamite through His Spirit in your inner being. We're strengthened by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4.16 is a passage where <clears throat> even though the outer man is failing, the inner man is being renewed every day. Think of that. What, what of us lasts forever? You know, it's not the body. It's going to be the spirit. And that's what God, through the strength he provides us, is empowering us with that inner being. And as he goes on, <clears throat> he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength. Why? To comprehend so strength to understand with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth. This is really cool. Uh, somebody had shared this with me, but <clears throat> when we think of, uh, I guess, the idea, a symbol maybe of perfection, we think of a circle. You know, how many of us have done weddings where we use, you know, the, the wedding band, it has no beginning, no end, your love has no beginning, no end, you know, all that corny stuff where we're all like rolling our eyes, get on with it. But the Greeks, at least in that time, thought as the perfect shape was a cube. So there's four, breadth, length, height, depth. And Paul incorporates that into the Ephesian letter. 
But notice the strength to understand with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. We need strength to do that. We need to be, we need to be trained. It's like anything. Um, those of you who've served in the military, I mean, you think of it, anything that they're going to have you do, they train you. They don't just say, go do this. My grandfather was in uh, the Pacific Theater. Uh, he was a radio man in the Navy. Uh, he was actually on Iwo Jima. He was actually on Okinawa. The stories he never did tell when he finally did tell. Very disturbing, highly disturbing. But one of the things he had told me uh, last week of his life before you know he had passed and I was sitting there talking to him, he said, you know, to this day, if you bark the order well enough about, you know, fire in the paint locker, that's an example he gave. Because he used to tell us, when he wanted us to hurry, fire in the paint locker. And we'd look at him like, I don't know what that means. And then he explained it to me one day, fire in the paint locker means you got to do something. Because if there's fire in the paint locker, then you're going to have some major trouble because it's easy to inflame and explode and, you know, it's like a closet that explodes in the middle of the ship. Uh, my dad was in a sub, and so he's like, yeah, the paint locker was actually highly protected. <laughs> if there was fire in the paint locker, it was big trouble. But even, I mean, what, you were in the Navy, you were on a ship. I mean, there were certain things that would be commanded, like prepare to fire. Everybody on a ship had a job, right? Now, you don't just sit there and go, what am I supposed to do? I mean, if you did that, you're going to get run over or yelled at or something, but... Um, you went and you did your thing that you'd been trained to do over and over and over and over. Dad said some of the things they would learn to do. You know, his job, I, I had asked him one time, what was your job? He goes, my job, when they said fire in the paint locker, was to go to the paint locker. I was one of the front line guys. I'm like, okay. What happens if they said to prepare to fire? He goes, well, I sat there on the sub and I had the steering column. You know, it's not a big panorama of TVs and all. He had a little... Like, uh, like an LCD monitor. He said it was like six by eight inches, and he had the little thing in his hands, and he says, I, preparing to fire, had to steady the entire ship. But everybody had something to do. Everybody does something. So all I'm trying to say is training means you're exercising yourself to do it where you don't even have to think about it. You just react. Now, I'm not saying we have to be reactors. That's probably not the best thing. But we need to know when... Like we're talking about someone coming in and not preaching the truth. It should really spark our attention. This guy's not saying the right thing. You know? I know this passage says this, and he's not saying that. When false teachers come in, it shouldn't be a big surprise because we know the truth. Uh, the Secret Service, I learned this. Uh, we were in Atlanta. My wife went in to go get diapers and came out crying. And I'm like, what's going on? She said, well, the $20 bill is a counterfeit, and they want to arrest me. Oh, my word, I went in there charging, you know, like protecting her. But uh, there was a guy there, a police officer of some kind. They had called the local whoever, and they were coming in, federal people. I'm like, you've got to be kidding. They're like, no, we've been looking for all kinds of counterfeit money, and your counterfeit $20 bill fits what they were looking for. So we weren't in any trouble. They just wanted to know where we got it. We got it from a Disney store. So, But what was really funny, I was like, how do you tell? Because this looked to me like a $20 bill. And he goes... Well, working for the Secret Service, you learn nothing except what's actually true. You don't have to know every deviation, every form of false $20 and 50s. You learn what a $20 bill is, and then, you know, I can touch it. He said, I can smell it. He, he just looked at it. What he told me actually was hold it up to the light. 
Because when you hold it up to the light, you're going to see a band that says whatever the denomination is, 20, 10, I think it goes down to 5. It is interesting, isn't it? Nobody counterfeits ones, really. (laughs) They counterfeit the big ones. So we need to know. But we need to stand. Years ago, in my experience in Virginia, we had a brother who had come from a major denomination. Uh, He was doing the invitation, and he basically preached the rapture. I don't know how else to put it. He got up there and said one day there was going to be the trumpet blast, and he went through the details of what I would say is the rapture. And I sat there as he went on that we're going to uh, meet the Lord in the air. He wasn't referring to 1 Thessalonians 4 at all. Uh, He was like, and we'll be in, in heaven for seven years. There's going to be a great tribulation here on earth. And I'm like, okay. It's one of those moments where you're like, i got to say something, and I did. I stood up and I said, brother, you're not preaching what the Bible teaches. And he was shocked and surprised. He's like, well, this is what I've known all my life. It's wrong. It's not in the Bible. And he sat down. Well, guess what? I had a handful of people come up to me afterwards and said, you embarrassed him. You embarrassed him. And part of me was like, I don't really care about that. I wasn't trying to embarrass him. It's not like that was my point was to embarrass him. My point was to protect the rest of us from false doctrine. I didn't want that to slide and let anyone, young children, think, okay, well, that's what's going to happen, or anything. Well, the elders, we finally talked, and they were like, yeah, we appreciate you You did stand up, and you shouldn't have had to stand alone. That's another moment of you just have to do it sometimes. But how many of us were afraid to hurt someone's feelings? We live in a society that that's, I remember growing up in high school, political correctness was beginning to foment. I never did understand it. Who cares what everybody thinks? Let's do the right thing. But there are people who are like, well, maybe you're right, but you said it in a way that, that hurt their feelings. I don't care. I mean, and I don't say that to everybody, but there are times deep down, I don't care. I really don't. I was talking to... Brother Otwell there about the Marine Corps. That's one of the things I miss working with those guys is chain of command was an easy thing to follow. Hurting feelings? Uh, (laughs) I mean, if you weren't breathing, you weren't hurting feelings. I mean, you know, it's one of these things. I mean, come on. It's just the way it is. But I know we live in a society that people just don't want to be offended. So when you have, and this has happened to me, it may have happened to some of you all, I'm standing in line at a grocery store, and there's a little boy who's dressed up as a girl. He's a boy. But he's dressed as a little girl and his mother's standing there wanting everybody to use the proper pronoun. I'm like you. I start shaking. I'm like, no. It's not going to happen. You're not getting that from me. She wanted to call the police on me because she was complaining. What the whole story boils down to, you had a clerk who was freaked out by this boy dressed up as a girl And she acted weird, and she didn't say anything, but she acted weird. And so she wanted the manager to chew the manager out about this clerk who reacted weird to my son who's dressed as a girl. And that's what she's ranting and raving. She was getting loud and boisterous, and we're all just standing there, and I'm right behind her. And I said, ma'am, you're doing a disservice to your son. You're probably doing more harm to him than anybody else. And I wasn't yelling at her or anything. Boy, she... She went ballistic. She went livid, arms thrown around. She got in my face. Someone called the police. Uh, it wasn't on me. It was just that there was a confrontation. What do you do? I know what we want to do is just wilt away. I am so sorry. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. In my way, that moment, I'm like, this boy needs to be protected. 
I don't know what else to say. He looked uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, even if he weren't uncomfortable, maybe he had lipstick on and was like acting like this is what was no- this not normal. I'm struggling with it myself. I struggle with people who have meltdowns in stores and nobody does anything. Uh, I saw it in Target one time, this adult person. I don't know if it was a man or a woman. That's how things are confused these days, you know. Throwing things, yelling at everybody, couldn't understand what they were saying, breaking things. And they were mad, obviously, about something. We're all standing there just watching it like it's a TV show. And I finally said, I've had enough. And another guy with me said, yeah, you go, I go. I said, I've been there before. You know, <laughs> We'll go together, we'll hold hands if we have to. But no, we both went. And we didn't touch the person. We just came up and said, you've got to stop. You've got to leave now. And they went screechy, you know, that extra high tone of you are hurting my feelings and threw their arms up like we were touching. And I'm like, we're not doing anything to you, but you've got to leave. You can't do this. And that was hard. Um, somebody had called the police at some point, and they came and wanted a report, and that was basically all we had to say. The TV show on, not TV show, the uh, monitors, you know, they had it, so they saw it. No big deal. But more and more our society seems to be just losing its collective mind. We need to not lose our collective mind. We need to be strong. But the strength we have isn't because of who we are. It's ultimately because of who we are with, which is this army of God, which is obviously, it's God. God is on our side. Uh, on the next little section there, uh, after Second Timothy chapter 2, you see where he says we are strengthened by the grace that's in Christ. We are sharing in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets himself entangled in civilian pursuits. His aim is to please the one who enlisted him. That's 2 Timothy chapter 2, and that's what we want to be, is enlisted and, and, and that's the point. We are with God. We want to be with him. We want to be in his army. We want to uh, honor him as uh, he never uses the term general or anything like that, but he's our commanding officer. This is the idea that he is the one in charge. We are going to follow his orders. And our orders may put us in danger, but this is the difference. It's not just that he's putting us in danger for the sake of it. He can save us, and he will save us ultimately. The next Greek word that I have there is prautes, which is the word for you know meekness and all. Uh, William Barclay defines it, putting it this way, the man who is praus is the one who's always angry at the right time, and he's never angry at the wrong time. And I like, I like that definition. If we're going to be meek, we're angry at the right time, never at the wrong time. It's not just about being angry. I don't want you to get that impression. It's the idea of when to be angry, when to stand strong, when to stand up and say something. Uh, Barclay will also conclude that no one can be, as you're talking about meekness and its connection with self-control, you can't be self-controlled. Really, ultimately, you want to be God-controlled. That's what this is about, that if we're going to live according to the Spirit, we're going to be mindful, we're going to be reading it. I don't know, we're not talking today about how to study the Bible, but... I know sometimes we think this book has so much going on, and it does, but I'll tell you how I got into it myself when I was in high school. I just started reading it. I know that sounds really weird. I didn't just randomly choose a place. I started with Matthew. I was going to read the New Testament, and I just read it. And there are details that are surprising because, you know, sometimes in our stories we, we kind of gloss over a few things, but now here are the details. But 
Honestly, I think if I know the Bible, it's because I just spend time with it. How do you know mechanicking? I don't know how many of y'all do any kind of mechanicking. Uh, when I first learned to do any sort of oil change in my car, my dad was like, you need to learn to do that. He didn't teach me. I had to learn myself. You know how I learned? I did it, and I did it badly. <laughs> Not only did I drain, I drain the oil wonderfully, but I put all the oil back in, you know, in the top. There's a hole in the top. I'm just showing you my, my mechanical prowess. I had a hole in the top, and I put the oil in the hole, and I forgot to put the cap on the hole. So guess what? When you start your engine, what is the smell? What's all that smoke? And then you find out. So guess what? The next time I did my oil change, what I did not forget was closing that hole. I've done other things. Uh, I've had some other adventures that are kind of fun, but you learn by experience. I think some of us would like to learn the Bible by just it being told to us and we're going to get it. I'm not a, I don't learn by hearing. I have to see things. And more than that, I have to do it. Uh, my oldest daughter's that way. She's real funny. I've shown her how to do things. She's like, I'm going to have to do it myself. That's me. And so when she does it, she's like, oh, I'm doing it. And it's hard sometimes when you're trying to train somebody and they're doing it wrong. And they're not doing it fast enough. You know, sometimes I've told her when she takes the wrench, you really need to pull on it. Don't just delicately do things. She's got to learn that. You can talk to somebody, but they've got to do it themselves. So strength sometimes, like I'm saying, is coming by exercise. We're actually doing things. And ultimately, that's exactly what we want to do is be doers, not just idea thinkers, but we're going to do this. Finally, because I'm running out of time, who knew? Integrity. What do you all think of when you think of integrity? What, how would you define integrity? Maybe that's probably not the right way to ask it. How would you define it? That's not my point. What is integrity? Character. Yeah, character. Okay. Being honest with yourself. You know, honesty is one thing when you're honest with others. You may not have integrity. In other words, you're doing the right thing when nobody's watching. That's integrity, right? And, and sometimes we think nobody else is watching. Well... If we're like 2 Kings 6, we've got an army around us all the time, <laughs> then we have somebody always watching. God knows for sure. But we are trained by constant practice. And as we think of integrity, I think of Job. Job says in Job 27, 5, 6, Far be it from me to say that you're right till I die. I will not put away my integrity from me. He's arguing with his friends. I hold fast my righteousness. I'm not going to let it go. My heart does not reproach me. For any of my days. Uh, we don't have time, but Psalm 15 is a great passage to show integrity. Uh, you read Psalm 15, and that's the point of integrity. Uh, we need to understand that. Uh, Titus 2, 7, 8, which is another paragraph or two down. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. What's meant by that? Model of good works. I mean, it's a... An apostle telling a preacher, you need to be a model of good works. So don't just talk the talk. What do you need to do? Walk, walk. Yeah, walk it. You, you've got to do these things. What do we call somebody who teaches but he doesn't do? Or he preaches and he doesn't do? Hypocrite, Hypocrite. yeah. One of the angriest people I ever dealt with was a South Carolina State Patrolman. <laughs> Didn't mean to get under his skin. And who knows what kind of day he had, but... Uh, he, you know, there's a speed zone of 35 uh, in downtown Beaufort, and it was hilarious because I'm probably driving 35 because of the state patrolman. Uh, I don't typically do that, but 
I know I was probably going the speed limit because of him, but he blew by. No lights, no nothing. I'm like, man, he, whatever's going on, it's dangerous. He was going to the gas station. <laughs> and I pulled in behind him because I needed gas too. And I thought, brave man, stupid man actually. <laughs> You're in a hurry? You know, that kind of thing. He's like, no. I'm like, well, you blew by me like it's 70. Oh, he got mad. You know, and I understand. I was a stupid young guy. Now I, I would approach it very differently. I probably wouldn't say anything. I'd probably you just... Did the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> Mickey may not agree with you. I don't know. He was a policeman for a while. We got other, you know, but anyway. I got he, a question for you. Yeah, go ahead. Do you know any preachers have had as many encounters with cops as you? No. <laughs> I got I to gotta tell you... The day I was getting, well, no, it was the day after we got married. We got married, and our honeymoon was in Cedar Key, Florida. And my wife is telling me, you got to slow down. She says, you drive too fast. I don't drive like a maniac. I, I was trained by my dad. He was in the Navy. One of his jobs was to drive admirals around, and so he worked in that detail. And uh, he trained me and my brother how to do it. Mark is bad. <laughs> But, you know, it's the thing where you can drive like six inches or a foot from the next guy. And, I mean, they're hand signals and all this kind of thing. Believe me, it's fun stuff. It really is. But she's telling me, she's in my ear about how fast I drive. At the time, I'm in a 55 zone going 90. And uh, how I know is because I wasn't paying attention to her so much, but blue lights came on. And uh, I pulled over, state patrol. And I respect them very much. They came out and he goes, sir, do you know why I pulled you over? Yeah, I was actually getting a lecture from my wife about how fast I was driving. I need to slow down, and I noticed when I saw your blue lights, I was going faster than the speed limit. I think that's how I put it. And he goes, yep, let me see your license and registration all that. And he goes back to the car, and he comes right back out. And he says, ma'am, keep it up. And since you just got married, he said, this is my gift to you. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you. Left me with my wife, who was in my ear, you know, that kind of thing, but... Yeah, I've had, I've had quite a few experiences. Some are great experiences, really. I mean, I've not really had any bad ones. But that guy was mad. Why? Because he's a hypocrite. Like I said, I don't know. Looking back on it, he could have been having a bad day. He may have just been on a bad traffic stop. I have no idea. It doesn't matter uh, at the end of the day. We don't like that. We know we don't like that. So when any of us do not model good works, when we expect people to model good works, we've got a problem. And like Paul says, you need to model good works and in your teaching, you show integrity, dignity, sound speech. Another word for integrity, we might say something lacks integrity. What do we mean? It lacks strength. It doesn't hold together. It doesn't hold together. It lacks strength. There's no framework. There's no foundation, maybe. So you think about how much integrity is. And last of all, because I'm looking at the clock here, 2 o'clock, Jesus I know we may not think of Jesus as the example, but he should be the example of strength. Again, I've suggested this with his legions of angels he could have called. Uh, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke, learn from me. I am gentle, which is that word prous. I'm meek and lowly. That doesn't mean he can't. It means he can, and he's holding back. We need to be... Obedient. Philippians 2 and verse 8 says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And a number of these passages will emphasize this very thing. Uh, last of all was the Ephesians 4 passage uh, that I'm looking at here, where he says that we are, in verse 13, uh, looking to get ourselves to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's our standard. 
read about Jesus. You know, sometimes we, we do trust so much what the preacher's preaching and the elders are telling us. We need to get in the Bible ourselves. The Bible is designed for the common man. And it's easy enough to listen to other preachers and listen to preachers and other teachers. We need to get into it. Because you may see things in the text that other people really haven't seen. It's not like you're going to find something so drastic, but God has given you a clear mind to look. And you're going to be familiar, thankfully, with Bible passages. The passage I want to close with is Philippians 4, as I have there at the very bottom, verses 8 and 9, when he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. How many of us spend hours on Facebook and Twitter? No show of hands. I'm guilty. Where might we spend half that time? <laughs> you know, that would be better for us. You know, and I'm a preacher. I, I get it. Sitting there on the Internet is an easy thing to do, and it, it, time passes quickly. It's not the best thing, not for the spirit, not for the time in which we live. Again, we are fighting a spiritual war. He uses the term warfare. And yes, he uses the term uh, there about the panoply of God, the defense of God. We need it all. Uh, and so, yes, these are things we need to be thinking about, about being strong. Uh, the very thing I want to close with is the recommended reading. Just to share this with you real quick, these aren't books I used for this study, really. Uh, but I do recommend uh, William J. Bennett from 93 has a book of virtues. It's a really good book. has a lot of just the whole book is really good with that. Robert Bork, uh, you might remember him. Uh, he wrote a book called Slouching Towards Gomorrah. It's a wonderful book. It's scary because written in 96, but it talks about what's going on right now in 2023. Uh, Carl Truman, those two books. One, if you like C.S. Lewis, I'd recommend the first one, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He writes a lot like C.S. Lewis, which means you have to read a paragraph three times to get it. Uh, the last book, Carl Truman and Ryan Anderson, is dumbed down. It's the same book, basically. But it, it loses 100 pages, and I read it, and I'm like, this is simple. Why didn't this one come out first, you know? So I can say I read the first one, but like I say, three times to get through a paragraph and go, I think I know what he's saying. <laughs> so I appreciate your time. I know Mike said we had 45 minutes. I could take two hours easy. I know I could. Next year. Next year. Okay. <laughs> I'll remember that. So. <laughs>